Thank you. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 this evening. Some of you just took a month off and feel like you're right back where we were before you left, and there's a reason for that feeling. We are. We took a pause from our study in the book of Ephesians to look at uh, the divinity and humanity of our Lord Jesus and his early years over the Christmas holidays. So this semester we anticipate studying Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. The bridge between 1, 2, and 3 and 4, 5, and 6 is this prayer in chapter 3 beginning at verse 14. It's the bridge between what Paul says God has done for us and what he will, beginning at chapter 4, verse 1, call us to do with that in the way that we live. It's the bridge, in other words, between what God has accomplished on our behalf and how he has blessed us in Jesus and then how that is lived out. And the bridge is a prayer asking for help to do it. In other words, the resource for you in life to live for Jesus if you have life from Jesus, the resource is not grunt it out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder, make stronger promises you have more intention to keep. But the bridge is to to rely on the help of God. And so he's going to pray for that help here in chapter 3. And so... We want to ponder these things, and and not only as we consider our own lives, praying this prayer for ourselves, but now that I've turned on the mic and you can hear me, yeah, I don't really need a mic. Uh, One of the, we want to say this, one of the most loving and most spiritually helpful things that you can do for another person is to pray for them. But there's a lot of weakness in our praying. And we can admit that because we don't look to our prayers to be right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. We we don't have to be defensive about the fact that we pray so little or so poorly. Because Christ has become for us all our righteousness and all our right standing with God. It's not a badge of honor to be good at praying. So this is not designed to, you know, sort of build you up so you can be full of yourself. Prayer is not a ladder by which you climb your way into heaven to get grace. We already stand in grace in Jesus. There's a lot of weakness. But you need to remember this. We are heard at the throne of grace by God through the merits of Christ, through the intercession, the mediation of Christ. In the book, The Praying Life by a man named Paul Miller, he puts it this way. Imagine your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar, reeking of alcohol and body odor, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. You have become your prayer. And as you shuffle toward the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word. Jesus, I come in the name of Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, as if by magic, it's not. As if by magic, the 
palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention, bowing low in front of you. Lights come on. The doors fly open. You're ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the throne room of the great king who comes running to you with arms open wide. The name of Jesus gives your prayers royal access, not, not in some magical way by you know, reciting the incantation of the name Jesus. But he gets you through. He's the savior not only of your soul, he's the savior of your prayers. Asking in Jesus' name isn't another thing I have to get right so my prayers are perfect. It is one more gift of God because my prayers are so imperfect. And so as you hear Paul talk about prayer, and he's going to teach you what you need from God through this prayer, he's also going to model for you how to pray. You remember that, friends. It's not about being perfect. He's perfect on our behalf. But we do want to consider what he prays for, what he requests, what he expects, and then what he aims for. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians 3 and look then at verse 14 through 21, I want you to hear now the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray now you would open the eyes of our heart that we would understand wonderful things in your word. We pray that you would show us what you've given to us in Jesus, what you intend to do in us. Because of Jesus, we pray that you build our confidence in you. We pray, Lord, that you would keep my lips from error, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John Newton, and we're going to sing Amazing Grace at the end of the service, but John Newton wrote lots of hymns. In one, he wrote these words. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. I think he may have had this passage in mind when he wrote those words. This is a prayer asking an enormous request with an enormous expectation of God's ability to answer it. 
with an enormous goal in mind. And so I want you to think about those three things. In the first place, the prayer request. We're covering some old ground here, so we'll move through it more quickly. All the way back then, what is he praying for? Look at verse 16. He's praying for what? He's praying for, I've outlined it in six steps, like he's climbing a ladder higher and higher with the things that he asks for. He wants in the first place that we should be Notice his language here. To be strengthened, end of verse 16, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants us to be spiritually strengthened internally because he knows that Christians are weak. And if you think that you are strong, you are weak indeed. He knows that we're weak, yet too often we act like the little engine that could, right? When presented with some challenge, maybe a difficult person to love. We say to ourselves, puff, 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 chug, chug, chug. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And when we sort of climb that mountain of difficulty, however we perceive it to be, and we think we've done what love requires, we say on the backside, I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. But but I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, is not how God intends the Christian to live. It's not how he designed us to live. And it would rob God of the glory for Christians to claim that. And and it robs him of the glory that he can bring to himself in helping us if we will rely on him. Our language shouldn't be, I think I can. Our language should be, I can't, I can't, I can't. Oh, help, oh, help, oh, help. And on the backside, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because we know that we need it. Like the brilliant and famous composer Bach, some of you perhaps know that when Bach composed, uh, he would write on, when he finished his composition, he would write the letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, or to God alone be the glory at the end of each composition. What you may not know is he also would write at the beginning, before he got started, JJ, which stood for Jesus Help. We need to be more like that, friends. Paul prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being. That, that, that our hearts would be like a little temple in which God lives and dwells and helps us. So he prays that we would be strengthened internally. And he wants then Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. So that, verse 17, Christ will dwell. That's the purpose of the Spirit coming. So Christ will live in us. Now you will say, but aren't I already Christian? Well, and, and, and if so, doesn't Christ already live in me? And that he, he does. He's come into your life. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You are complete in Christ. You have Jesus. But the, very, the word here describes something he wants to see Jesus do in us. And that is to set up permanent residence and make our hearts his home, the kind of home he wants to live in. In other words, Jesus isn't going to visit us or vacation with us. He's going to settle down. He's going to renovate. He's going to expand. He's going to make us a fit home for himself. And that's the purpose of the Spirit. And that's the purpose of the indwelling of Christ, asking for it. You may have lots or you may have little. You all have some, and most of us, including this pastor, have far too little. You all have some if you believe in Jesus. 
But it is a thing of degrees how much he has captured us and renovated us and changed us and transformed us. We spoke of that last time we were together. Then he says, I want you to be established in love. I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. And then he says, I want you to understand the love of Christ. Notice the language here. So that Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. He wants you to understand it. You will see that love and understand it most clearly at the cross, but secondarily in his church. You'll see it most clearly at the cross. Paul Miller, in that book I mentioned, tells the story of when his, his daughter was distant from her dad for more than a half decade. She wasn't very close in the relationship. It greatly troubled him. However much he tried to move close to her, she pushed away. These were years of hard-heartedness in her relationship with him. And the year before she went to college, after she graduated from high school, with great hopes of a change of heart by a change of scenery, she uh, was placed to help in an orphanage for a year. While she was there, she was flipping through her computer, looking at photos, and a friend came up and said, well, show me your pictures, and pictures of her family came up. And as she was showing pictures of her family, she noticed the little captions her dad, over years and years and years, had written on those photos, how he loved her, and words of encouragement. And it, she says it melted her heart, and she began to weep in front of her friend who didn't understand. And she came home a changed girl. Why? What she did was review her history with her father and she began to see it in a whole new light. Now listen, one of the ways that you know the love of Christ is to review your history with God. To review your, the history of your relationship with him. Here's your history with him. From conception, you have said to him, I'm not interested. You have pushed him back. You have held him off. You've turned your back and you've walked away. You said, I will not have you rule over me. I will decide my future for myself. Thank you very much. I will determine my destiny. I will live how I want to live. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't really want a relationship with you. That's what every one of our sins has said to the Father. But here's his history with you. Before you were created, from all eternity, the Father loved you. And he looked at you in all your hardness of heart, all your coldness to him. And the Father and the Son together said, let us love this child, let us bring this one home. And the Son said, here here I am, I'll go for us, I'll do it. And Jesus came and he let you push him back. He let you push his back up. Against a tree. He let you hammer the nails into his wrists. He let you beat him with whips. He let you spit in his face. He let you crucify him. Turn your back and walk away. And then he said, oh, father in heaven. See me as her. Do to me, oh, father, what she deserves. Push me away. 
You turn your back upon me. You hide your face from me. You crush me and give me what justice demands. And I will take it in her place, in his place, on their behalf. And, oh, friends, this is what he did for us. Would you see this? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you see that's your history, you begin to see how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The love of Christ is broad enough, we said last time, to encompass all mankind, Jew and Gentile, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people group. And it's long enough to last for eternity. And it is deep enough to find you in the deepest pit of degradation. And it is high enough to raise you to the heights of heaven. This is the love of Christ. But you don't just learn this love at the cross. You learn this love in community. I think this is the... At least part of what he means by when he says, verse 18, that you have made, that he prays that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth. It's a fascinating little phrase he inserts there. Perhaps Paul here, perhaps not thinking so much of the cross in terms of the love of Christ, perhaps he's thinking of a, of a great cube, wide, Long, high, and deep. Why do I say a cube? I know that sounds so weird. A cube in which love fills all. Well, perhaps he's thinking of the church as a massive cube and every believer a part of that cube. Like in the book of Revelation where the bride of Christ is called the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. And we think the New Jerusalem is a city. And then we discover that the city is a people. A thousand miles by a thousand miles by a thousand miles in dimension. And none in the family are unloved. And all the family have been embraced by this love. And together with all the saints, we hear the story of Jesus' love for each one. And we begin, at least in this life, we begin even to experience a bit of the love of Jesus through his people. Perhaps that what he has in mind. Christianity is communal and i want to say to you that if you isolate yourself the less you will know of the love of christ and the more involved and connected to the body you are the more you'll see this love enfleshed and working itself out we need one another to see to comprehend the love of christ but he doesn't want us to to know about it and be able to maybe describe it intellectually or understand it he wants us to deeply experience it and so he says i don't want you just simply to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and depth and, and height of the love of christ but to know and there he uses the word for experiential knowledge he wants you to to taste he wants you to know the love of Christ in a way that you can't even quite explain. And maybe you say, you know, I think I've just made barely a, the smallest beginning at knowing anything of the love of Christ. My, my taste of the love of Christ has been but a nibble. Then I would say to you, there's great hope for you here. Paul is saying there is a whole banquet of love and a feast to be had, and we need to grow in. Our understanding, embrace, appreciation for experience of that love. Don't, don't be too discouraged, friends. If, if the love of Christ seems to wax and wane in your heart and you, you feel like, I'm not even sure if I've but begun to taste it. 
There is so much more on its way. And so he prays that we will know the love of Christ. Now, by the way, don't misunderstand anything I've just said to you. He does not mean here that Christ will love you more and more over time. It's not that the love of Christ grows. It's not that it's small and it gets big later. But we will, in some ways, experience it that way. It grows on us, so to speak. And so then in the sixth place, and finally under this first point, he says, he wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants us to be filled up. And a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out what Paul means. And I'm not going to sort all that for you. I haven't even settled myself on exactly what he means here. He may mean... God fills us with his fullness, or he may mean we will be full just as God is full. That that God's fullness becomes the level up to which we pray to be filled. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but clearly he means for us to become more and more like Christ. and And to have more and more the experience of Christ. The experience of Christ's love. The experience that Christ has of the Father's love. Without ourselves becoming divine, but remaining truly human. Because we do. Well, have you arrived? Of course not. Have you begun? I hope so. Are you increasing? Only God can make it so. Only he can. So pray for that. That's his, that's his request. He prays this. But then he has enormous, if you thought that's an enormous thing, look at his expectations here. Notice the language of verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory. You see what he's saying here? His expectations are that God will work his power and he's able to do it. We're not left to our own resources here to try to figure out and conjure up the love of Jesus. Do you remember in your Old Testament history the complaints of the descendants of Joseph after Joseph died and a pharaoh had come up who didn't know Joseph and his descendants, and, and, and he, he enslaved the Israelites in Egypt, and he made life miserable them with cruel work, baking bricks so that he could carry on his building projects. And do you remember at one point that Pharaoh, that they, they had complained about the hard work, and Pharaoh worked them all the harder? How did he work them all the harder? He added to their quota of the number of bricks they had to produce. And he told them, and now you need to go out and find the straw to do the work. In other words, I'm not going to give you the resources you need to accomplish the work. I'm just going to make it all that much harder for you. And I want to say to you, God is not a taskmaster like that. He's not a slave driver like that. He doesn't command that which he will not supply. This is why Augustine, the famous Augustine, prayed, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Tell me what you want me to do, that's fine, and and help me do what you want me to do. There is such weakness in our lives, friends. There is such weakness in my heart to contain the love of Christ, to hold it in. It, It seems like it slips out like water in a broken jar all the time. And we need power in our weakness. And he doesn't just simply say that God is able. He's praying God will do it. 
He isn't just confessing, I'm needy and dependent. He's expressing dependency by crying out for prayer, in prayer. Lord, help me. And so he says, God, and his expectations are, are huge. He says, he says, God can do what you ask. God is active. He's not inactive. God isn't sitting back on his hands. God isn't dead. God isn't watching you from a distance. As Bette Midler once put it a long time ago, you don't even know what I'm talking about. God is not far off. He hasn't wound up the universe like a clock. And then he's sitting back from, you know, looking through binoculars at what's going on on planet Earth. But doesn't care. He's uninvolved. He's unrelational. He isn't just involved in everything, friends. He is involved internally. God is able to do this. And he can do all that you ask and even think or imagine. Because he can read your thoughts, even if you thought, I don't even know if I should ask for that. So you didn't ask, but you imagined it. He's able to do that. He's able to do more than all we ask or I think. He's able to do more because his expectations are higher than ours. So he dreams big, even when we dream small. And he's able, Paul says, to do more abundantly. Than all we ask or think. He's able to do that because he isn't tight. And he doesn't hold back. He's not a miser. He's generous, open-handed. And he's able to do, Paul says, far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. Because he's generous and he's limitless. And there are no limits to what he can do according to his power that is at work within you. What is that power? Paul had said all the way back in Ephesians 1, the power that is at work in you, Ephesians 1.19, is the power that raised Christ from the dead. God exercised his power in giving life to Christ in his death. And God, chapter 2, has already given you life in your spiritual death. And that power is at work in you. Now look, I know you say to me, well, it's so hard to believe sometimes. I mean, I feel my own weakness, but I don't feel this enormous power that raises people. From death. I mean, look at me. Look at my life. I, I'm still struggling with the same sins I struggled with 20 years ago at some level. I'm frustrated with me. I don't care for people the way I ought to care for people. I don't love people the way I ought to love people. God's told me all these things to do, and I know I'm supposed to do them, and I don't do them. What do you mean the power of the resurrection is at work in me? Paul says it is. It is. It is at work in you. But it is at work in you in such a way that it has not made you and sustained you at a place of perfection. That yet awaits glory. But it is power at work in you in weakness now. And it is power available to you. One thing you can never say to God is, well, I'm this way, I'll always be just this way, because you won't help me. You can never say that to God. God is more willing and ready to help you than you are to ask for it. Abide in me, Jesus said, and you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So I want to say to us, as we contemplate chapters 4, 5, and 6, and all the things Paul says we're supposed to do, don't say to yourself, you know, I just can't be gentle. I'm not that kind of person. 
Or I, I can't be patient. I just have a short temper. I can't really forgive others. I've always just found that really difficult. Do not say, husbands, you cannot love your wives self-sacrificially. Do not say, wives, you could never submit to your own husbands, whatever that means. Whatever that means. It's a quiet power, though. It's a quiet power. We're, we're pretty impressed with spectacular displays of power. I mean, I, I love it when my kids show me some explosive dunk on YouTube and the, you know, and the backboard just shatters with the power of the athlete slamming the ball on it. We're a little unimpressed, I think, with the guy who just, over the course of a 10-year career, shoots 95% from the free throw line. We ought to be impressed. There are a few people who are. But most of us completely overlook it, and it will never be on a highlight reel. Because it's easy to say, wow, at big things. So it's easy for us to say, wow, when somebody is healed of a disease. That seems like a tremendous display of God's power. But we don't think to ourselves, wow, you know, that guy goes home from work every day, and he kisses his wife, and he talks to his wife, and he loves his family every day in the face of temptation. We think, you know, I'd really like God to show up and walk on water. I mean, that would be a great display of power. But we don't think it's impressive when God shows up and a child obeys mom and dad out of respect for Jesus because they said, help. I know I'm supposed to. But it is impressive. It's a display of resurrection power. And when I am weak, then I am strong. And when you feel helpless to do what he tells you to do, don't be too proud to say, help me. God is able to do far more abundantly than all you could ask or imagine according to his power at work within you. And the final thing is this, his aim. That's his expectation. His aim in this prayer is what? To God, what? Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. His, his, his aim is that God would be glorified. He's stating that God will be glorified and he's praying, may you be glorified. And glorified in the church. Glory, the glory of God is on display, friends, when, when people who hate God get a heart change and they begin to love God. When sinners are forgiven, when orphans are adopted, when you are transformed by the Holy Spirit and you begin, you begin to delight in God. God gets glory from that. He also gets glory when people from different backgrounds and different colors and cultures and ages are brought together around Christ. And they love one another because they've tasted the love of Christ and they enjoy the gospel. And so they've determined to love one another. God's glorified in that. But, but, but it's okay to say, Lord, you could do a lot more than this. Do it. It's okay to say that. It's okay to be aware, profoundly aware, we ought to be, of the church's flaws. And say, you know, the Christian community doesn't live like this. The Christian community doesn't seem to honor God the way that he ought to be honored. It's not so obvious, I think, sometimes how he is being honored. But when you look at the church and you see how imperfect she is, please do not grow cynical. God is glorified in her 
in ways you don't even know. Have you ever been to some other city and you hope to see some grand old building in all its glory? You know, maybe you went and you thought, well, I'll see the Empire State Building or I'll see Buckingham Palace. And you, you arrived there, spent a great deal of money to get there. And you couldn't see the building because it was surrounded by scaffolding. And all you could see, really see were pipes and platforms and tools and workers. Well, friends, that is the church. That is often what we see in the church. We see but the scaffolding of the grand building that God is putting together and will put on display as the bride of his son for all eternity. And she is glorious. But you could just barely catch a glimpse of who she is. And would you remember this as well? When you look at the church and you see its imperfections and you say, it's not really living up to the expectations of the New Testament. You know, I'm not really seeing God's love here. I don't really see God's holiness here. This isn't really what I thought it would be as a new church plan. I thought it would be all exciting, all success, no failure, whatever it is. Would you just remember, friends? That all you are seeing when you see that is proof that what Jesus said is true. That there is no perfect church on this earth. Just as there are no perfect Christians in this life. And if you found a perfect church, it would mean Jesus wasn't true. But you never will, not here. Not till then. God will be glorified in his church and he will be glorified throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen, Paul says there. I think he means there's no final fulfillment here, but rather an ever increasing display of God's glory on into eternity. I will say, I mean, absolutely to be sure, when you die, you you will see the Lord as he is and you will be made like him. It will be instantaneous and sudden and you will go from being imperfect to perfect, from immoral to moral. From unloving to loving, from unchristlikeness to Christlike, in an instant. And it'll be awesome. What you will one day be has but barely begun now. And though you will never be divine and you will always be human, I think we can I think we can say this. There is no reason to think that you will come to the end of all the glory of God in your life. In heaven, you will always be finite and his love, just as his knowledge will always exceed your limits and you will grow and grow more and more. There's an expansiveness to heaven as you look forward. It's, it's never complete and this is perfect. You'll be made perfect in righteousness, don't misunderstand. But growing in the knowledge of the infinite God and of his infinite love will be the part of the excitement of heaven. And your heart won't burst like a balloon being filled that explodes and loses everything. But, your, but the, even the walls of your heart will expand more and more with the glory of his love and his power and his grace forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would honor yourself in your church that you would be truly exalted among us, that you would give us respect for you, that you would help us to know the love of Christ. 
You would help us to delight in you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.